Welcome to the Terry Podcast, Tales from Near and Far, read to you by Pratham Data. A Child's History of England, read to you by Pratham Data. This is where we stand. In the last episode, Henry V, after his famous victories at Agincourt, passed away, and he and Catherine of Valois had a single child who became Henry VI of England. The year at this point of time is 1421 and a new realm and a new age is about to begin, especially across the English Channel in France with the coming of Joan d'Arc or the Maid of New Orleans. Chapter 22 England under Henry VI, part the first. It had been the wish of the late king that while his infant son, King Henry VI, at this time only nine months old, was under age, the Duke of Gloucester should be appointed regent. The English Parliament, however, preferred to appoint a council of regency with the Duke of Bedford at its head to be represented in his absence only by the Duke of Gloucester. The Parliament would seem to have been wise in this, for Gloucester showed himself to be ambitious and troublesome, and in the gratification of his own personal schemes, gave dangerous offence to the Duke of Burgundy, which was with difficulty adjusted. As that duke declined the regency of France, it was bestowed by the poor French king upon the Duke of Bedford. But the French king dying within two months, the Dauphin instantly asserted his claim to the French throne and was actually crowned under the title of Charles VII. The Duke of Bedford, to be a match for him, entered into a friendly league with the Dukes of Burgundy and Brittany and gave them his two sisters in marriage. War with France was immediately renewed and the perpetual peace came to an untimely end. In the first campaign, the English, aided by this alliance, were speedily successful. As Scotland, however, had sent the French 5,000 men and might send more or attack the north of England while England was busy with France, it was considered that it would be a good thing to offer the Scottish King James, who had been long imprisoned, his liberty on his paying £40,000 for his board and lodging during 19 years and engaging to forbid his subjects from serving under the flag of France. It is pleasant to know not only that the amiable captive at last regained his freedom upon these terms, but that he married an English lady, a noble one, with whom he had been long in love and became an excellent king. I'm afraid we have met with some kings in this history and shall meet with some more who would have been very much the better and would have left the world much happier if they had been imprisoned 19 years too. In the second campaign, the English gained a considerably victory at Verneuil 
in a battle which was cheaper and walkable otherwise, for there resulted to the odd expedient of tying their baggage horses together by their heads and tails and jumping them up with the baggage so as to convert them into a sort of live fortification, which was found useful to the troops, but which I should think was not agreeable to the horses. For three years afterwards, very little was done, owing to both sides being too poor for war, which is a very expensive entertainment. But a council was then held in Paris, in which it was decided to lay siege to the town of Orléans, which was a place of great importance to the Dauphin's cause. An English army of 10,000 men was dispatched on the service, and under the commands of the Earl of Salisbury, a general of fame. He being unfortunately killed early in the siege, the Earl of Suffolk took his place, under whom, reinforced by Sir John Falstaff, who brought up 400 wagons laden with salt herrings and other provisions for the troops, and beating off the French, who tried to intercept him, came victorious out of a hot skirmish, which was afterward in chest, called the Battle of the Herrings. The town of Orléans was so completely hemmed in that the besieged proposed to yield it up to their countryman, the Duke of Burgundy. The English general, however, replied that his Englishmen had won it so far by their blood and valour, and that his Englishmen must have it. There seemed to be no hope for the town, or for the Dauphin, who was so dismayed that he even thought of flying to Scotland or to Spain, when a peasant girl rose up and changed the whole state of affairs. The story of this peasant girl I have now to tell. Part the second, the story of Joan of Arc. In a remote village, among some wild hills in the province of Lorraine, there lived a countryman whose name was Jacques d'Arc. He had a daughter, Joanne d'Arc, or Joan of Arc, who was at this time in her twentieth year. She had been a solitary girl from her childhood. She had often tended sheep and cattle for whole days, where no human figure was seen or human voice heard. She had often knelt for hours together in the gloomy, empty little village chapel, looking up at the altar and at the dim lamp burning before it, until she fancied that she saw shadowy figures standing there, and even that she heard them speak to her. The people in that part of France were very ignorant and superstitious, and many had many ghostly tales to tell about what they had dreamed, and what they saw among the lonely hills when the clouds and the mists were resting on them. So they easily believed that Jeanne saw strange sights, and they whispered among themselves that angels and spirits were talking to her. At last, Joan told her father that she had one day been surprised by a great unearthly light and had afterwards heard a solemn voice which said it was St. Michael's voice telling her that she was to go and help the Dauphin. 
Soon after this, she said, St. Catherine and St. Margaret had appeared to her with sparkling crowns upon their heads and had encouraged her to be virtuous and resolute. These visions had returned sometimes, but the voices very often. And the voices always said, Joan, thou art appointed by heaven to go and help the Dauphin. She almost always heard them while the chapel bells were ringing. There is no doubt now that Joan believed she saw and heard these things. It is very well known that such delusions are a disease which is not by any means uncommon. It is probable enough that they were figures of St. Michael and St. Catherine and St. Margaret in the little chapel where they would be very likely to have shining crowns upon their heads and that they first gave Joan the idea of those three personages. She had long been a moping, fanciful girl, and though she was a very good girl, I dare say she was a little vain and wishful for notoriety. Her father, something wiser than his neighbours, said, I tell thee, Joan, it is thy fancy. Thou hadst better have a kind husband to take care of thee, girl, and work to employ thy mind. But Joan told him in reply that she had taken a vow never to have a husband and that she must go as heaven directed her to help the Dauphin. It happened unfortunately for her father's persuasions and most unfortunately for the poor girl too that a party of the Dauphin's enemies found their way into the village while Joan's disorder was at this point and burned the chapel and drove out the inhabitants. The cruelty she saw committed touched Joan's heart and made it worse. She said that the voices and the figures were now continually with her and that they told her she was the girl who, according to an old prophecy, was to deliver France and she must go and help the Dauphin and must remain with him until he should be crowned at Reims and that she must travel a long way to a certain lord named Baudricourt who could and would bring her into the Dauphin's presence. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed it, please comment and please like it and subscribe. Please do let me know if there are certain tales from whichever part of the world you might be in that you would like me to read. Thank you.